Sometimes you hear these criticisms, well, we can't get to 100% carbon-free grid because we don't have the technology. I would answer that's not even a relevant question yet. Conceptually, we can. The real relevant question is how quickly can we start to decarbonize today? Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Today, I'm extremely pleased and proud to be joined by my colleague and friend, Peter Kelly Dittweiler, founder of Northbridge Energy Partners. You may have heard Peter's voice on previous episodes of Smart Energy Voices, as he's an active faculty member of SED at our events. Today, Peter joins me not as a colleague, but as a guest to discuss his new book, The Energy Switch, How Companies and Customers are transforming the electrical grid and the future of power. Peter has decades of experience in the energy industry and is without question one of the smartest and most knowledgeable people in the industry. So let's dive right in. Peter, welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Thank you, John. It's a true pleasure to be here. Hey, Pete, let's start off by having you tell us a little about yourself and your background. While most people at SED will know you and know of you, there are going to be some listeners that are not familiar with us and not familiar with your background, and I'd like them to get the benefit of knowing a little about you. Sure, thank you. So I've been in power markets now in one way, shape, or form, or in the electric industry for 30 years, first starting as a consultant for the the Cree Indians and other Aboriginal groups in in Canada who were actually opposing large hydro projects. And then we won all those cases. Then I spent a couple of years in Chile and then 97 came back and got into retail competitive energy markets when they were just getting off the ground, had several incarnations in that space and then moved into starting up Constellation Energy's demand response group where we paid large customers not to use power during periods of peak demand. And then ultimately in 2012, I took Severance from Exelon slash Constellation. They spun that business out eventually. And that's when sort of my modern life started where I wanted to figure out where all these, how all these constituent elements of the grid were going to start to combine and meld together. Batteries, EVs, wind, solar, the whole thing. So I started writing for Forbes. I wrote 300 articles for Forbes, the first 150 in the first year of my the year I enjoyed severance and then just started working well with folks like you communicating with the people in your orbit and so on in this desperate sometimes effort to try and pull the pieces together and make sense of this really interesting blender of technologies and business models and regulatory policies, et cetera, that are driving change across the whole industry. Yeah, it's fascinating because you've come at this from a number of different angles and perspectives. Let's talk first about writing the book. We've been talking about this passion project that you've had for several years, and I don't know that I've ever asked you, why did you write the book? What what motivated you? Well, you know, I, at some point I'd written enough articles for Forbes that I felt like I had a pretty good picture, and people started to ask me, when are you going to write the book? And 
At the same time, you know, my frustration in the industry for a long time was that I'd never had a mentor, really someone to help me contextualize and put all the pieces together. And I couldn't find a single source or document or conversation anywhere that was helping me put it all together. And so I figured, you know, someone's got to do this. I'm dumb enough to give it a try. So why don't I embark on that voyage and see if I can frame and contextualize this so that a reader could understand it across the the whole spectrum of what's happening and, and make some general sense of it for themselves, for their companies, for their colleagues. Yeah. You have the spirit of a true educator. And while your goal in part is clearly to educate, one of the things I admire most about you is that you're also an engaged and an active student. Your thirst for knowledge and additional insights, I, I think, is insatiable. What what were some of the more interesting things that you actually learned during the process of writing the book, Peter? Well, you know, first to plug to you all, I was able to get lots of great information from SED members, and some of them are actually profiled in the book. The other thing is, I tried to remember during the whole process what it was like to not know, because we're always sitting on one side or the other of that information frontier, and I always like to push into the adjacencies, but you all, we all remember sitting in a room, a conference room, whatever, and you don't want to raise your hand and ask that question because you feel awkward about it. Well, turns out everybody wants to know that same question. So then for me in that process, what became really interesting was how to make something that is very technically complex at some level, how to power markets work, what happens in a control room, et cetera. How do you make that accessible? And so what I found was the mental Velcro there was really by attaching the concepts to people. So every chapter, I try to find an interesting individual or two or three and tell their story and use that as the on-ramp into the nuances and the complexities of whatever space they inhabited. And so the surprise with that was that it was really fun telling the stories and then sometimes hard getting into the footnotes and the detail and the research because there's 50 pages of footnotes in this thing. But, but also the other big surprise was this soon became a project that was bigger than I was in the sense that at one point I had my 15 or 16 chapters and I knew I had some egregious errors in there because you can't get it all right the first time. So I went on to my community of, of friends and colleagues on LinkedIn and said, here are the chapters, here are the subject titles, who wants to rip me to shreds? and find the mistakes I've made, and also grammatical stuff. And I had volunteers for every single chapter of the book, whether it was how turbines work and fluid mechanics or what's happening with batteries and so on and so forth. And the level of engagement soon became intense that I had you know, two or three edits coming back from different people on all these chapters. And at one point I realized this book is not me anymore. This is an us project. This is a we project. It became really big, really fast. And so what surprised me was the joy and the effort around that. That's beautiful. The notion of people being at the core here, I think is fascinating. And in reading the book, Peter, I enjoyed learning about all of these different people in different walks of life that are all responsible for helping us figure out how the transition is actually going to work and how it's going to happen. One of the many fascinating things about the book is that there are basics, 
that cover people at the 101 level, and there are 400 level topics that are discussed. I'd like, in, in terms of key themes, I'd really like to zero in on some of the topics that relate more to the future and where things are headed and what's going to need to happen in order for us to realize the potential of the energy switch. So those are the those are the things I'd like to really explore with you. And the first is the changing face of, of the grid. What customers and users are doing to navigate the transition has been well-documented, but we still don't know yet what the grid eventually is going to have to look like. In the book, you reference the four stages of evolution of the grid that you think are going to be necessary. Peter, from your point of view, I mean, what does the grid look like in five years? Tell us about the four stages of evolution that the grid's going to need to go through. Sure. So funnily enough, there's an NREL report on stages one through four in storage that came out after I'd already sent the book in and it looks plagiarized, which means that I guessed pretty well. So 1.0 is the grid before the advent of any storage per se, or even renewables. It's the grid of 10 or 15 years ago. Pretty carbon intensive. Yeah, some pumped hydro, but not much ability to store electrons. And so Really, it's instantaneous supply and demand like no other commodity in the world. So that's 1.0. That's what we used to be doing. 2.0, you start to introduce a lot of renewables into the system because at the end of the day, the drive right now, the race for humanity to keep us in a Goldilocks climate, not too hot, not too cold, not more than 1.5 degrees centigrade over where we are now, is about decarbonizing not just the power grid, but our entire energy economy. So 2.0 means you start to integrate as many renewables as you possibly can into the grid and make the other resources in the grid respond accordingly. And I moderated a conference at GE's Minds and Machines conference, a panel there maybe four or five years ago. And I had a power trader and he said, the new base load is renewables. And I said, no way, base load's flat. You know, it's nukes and, and coal. He goes, no, renewables are now the cheapest electron in the marketplace. And so now, and the cleanest. So now the role of the rest of the entire grid is to accommodate the integration of as many low cost, clean renewables as we possibly can. So what does that mean? So 2.0, you're trying to build as much of that as possibly as you possibly can. And then you take all the other assets and you start to make them have to flex. And the one that does the most work there is you change that old gas turbine or new one, but the workhorse of the industry, and you start to force it into a more flexible mode. And in fact, that's what's happening. If you look at California, for example, those gas plants are cycling every single day to accommodate this influx of solar during the, the duck curve. When the belly of that duck starts to sag, that means all of the conventional gas-fired resources are cycling down, moving into minimum turndown mode, and then getting to ramp from, say, 13,000 megawatts to 26,000 megawatts over four hours in the evening on an early spring day. So that's sort of 2.0. You're jumping all those renewables in, and you can get about 30% renewables into the grid. We used to only think it could be 5 or 10%, and then we realized you digitize your power plants, you get more flexible in the operation, you get to that level. 3.0 is, all right, now I've brought in so much wind and so much solar that I have negative covariance, which we've talked about in some of our events before, John. Yes, yes. Where you bring, it's like the first beer is always my favorite beer. 
right? That's the most value to me. The second one declines a little bit by three or four beers. Now I might have negative utility from that. Same thing happens. You add too much solar or a lot of solar into the grid, you can drive prices negative. In Australia, for example, Q1 of this year, there's so much solar in Australia. Prices went negative from 10 on average for Q1 from 10 in the morning to three in the afternoon. Prices went $12 negative and they had to curtail solar on people's rooftops. Now you bring storage into the game. Four hours of lithium ion batteries, which is the sweet spot right now, means you can shift those four hours of carbon, of solar intensive, excuse me, or renewables intensive period of time when prices are going negative and move those to periods of higher demand. So in the case of California, I've kind of coined the phrase to tummy tuck the duck. I'm going to have t-shirts and hats and t-shirts and bumper stickers, all TM. You know, I'll be giving those out at conferences. Love that. And essentially what you do when you tummy tuck the duck is you charge your batteries or your electric vehicles because they're just batteries on wheels. And then you move that energy and release it into the grid in the evening when it's needed. So you're not having to build new gen. So that gets you to roughly say 60%. And we know this can happen because if you look in Hawaii at Kauai, for example, they're already north of 60% renewables. If you look at Maui, they're at 50.8% as of two months ago. And that's wind mostly, like 30, well, high 20s. And 22% of renewables from Maui is from the customer side of the meter. And now they've added a bunch of storage into the mix. So now we see, oh, we can get to 50%, 60% with four hours, maybe six hours of batteries. The next thing that starts to happen is you bring in these longer duration resources, let's say 10 to 12, which is what California is doing in its new RFPs. And you're seeing companies with a cryogenic energy, frozen liquid air energy storage. Highview Power just announced two gigawatt hours of storage projects in Spain aimed at this longer duration stuff. But ultimately that might get you to 70 or 80%. The last and the toughest nut to crack is, what do you do from a seasonal perspective? Or what do you do when there's five days of rain in California and the sun ain't shining? Well, now you need enough storage if you want to decarbonize the grid to move huge chunks, gigawatt hours and maybe terawatt hours of power from one long period of time to another. That's probably the hydrogen game that gets you to the 100%. And that's like a decade plus out. But the 60 to 70%, That's visible now in a lot of grids with the tools we have in the toolkit today. Interesting. So is it safe to say stage 3.0 is what looks closest to that is maybe what's in Hawaii now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I know you referenced in the book that kind of the closest thing to 4.0 is is actually in Europe. I guess there are some Northern European countries that have grids that are the most evolved. Is that is that accurate or a fair statement? It's true, but they cheated. And I, and I mean that in the, in, the, in, the, in the nicest way. Like Hydro-Quebec's grid is 99% renewable. Right. And so is Iceland. They have a little bit of geothermal, but it's almost hydro. Sweden's got nukes and mostly hydro. So they were blessed with abundant dispatchable hydro. So behind dams, they have gigawatt hours, in, in Hydro-Quebec's case, terawatt hours of storage. But in a carbon intensive grid where you're starting with a 1.0 where you're burning stuff, creatures that died or plants that died millions of years ago, now that transformation looks a lot different than someplace where Santa Claus showed up and gave you all the presents before you even started the process. Yeah, fascinating. Well, great. That's really interesting and something that we'll keep an eye on to 
see what happens. Because one of the points you made in the book was you said Thomas Edison would recognize the grid very much in 2000, the way it was when it started. And it's this rapid evolution that's got to take place now to keep up with the demands of end users. So there's the evolution of the grid that's kind of one really interesting topic in the book that you covered, I think, better than anyone I've seen. The second point that you reference is something that I've often wondered about because you've got this dynamic of federal regulatory framework, but state policy and guidelines, and those two have to work together to accommodate what large power users are going to want to accomplish. And you use the term kind of state policy is slamming into the federal regulatory framework. What What's actually happening there? Why is it an issue? And what do you think has to happen so those two forces get aligned and work in sync to enable the grid of the future? Yeah, it's a complex question, but let's try and break it down into a few pieces. So at the federal level, electricity that's transported across AC lines, synchronous lines, from one state to another constitutes interstate commerce and therefore is regulated by the feds, by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. That's exactly why, for example, Texas, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, and Texas doesn't export more than 800 megawatts of power, and that's DC, because they don't want the feds involved. But almost every other place has federal jurisdiction because there's interstate commerce. So there's this federal level policy around fair and reasonable rate setting, fair and reasonable is, is the, what the FERC holds themselves to in this decision-making process. And they're trying to mandate what's happening with transmission lines and power plants and wholesale markets like you know PGM, the Mid-Atlantic, Mid-Continental ISO, ISO New England, New York, et cetera. So there's that level of the conversation with also the North American Electric Reliability Corporation in there to make sure that power flows reliable and secure and that there's enough generation being built and all that. So that happens big picture. And it hasn't involved a lot of discussion yet around externalities, specifically carbon, but other pollutants as well. Typically, those decisions have devolved down to the state level, whether it's zero emissions credits for nuclear plants in a place like New York, New Jersey, or Illinois, or Massachusetts subsidies for solar, or you know different things happening in different states around the country. And so where these things slam into each other at that level is if these states have zero emissions credits, for example, Mm -hmm. the gas fire generators cry foul because they say, hey, we're competing in this marketplace. We're supposed to be competing on a level playing field, all offering in based on who's most competitive and who can offer in at the best price. Well, if I'm competing against a solar facility that has a state level subsidy or nukes with zero emissions credits, how is that fair? So what happened in a place like PJM is they set this minimum offer pricing rule Mm -hmm. that the FERC was involved in as well that said, if there are state level subsidies in capacity markets where you're selling your ability to generate, which represents like roughly 20% of revenues in PJM, these guys, renewable state subsidies, have to bid in at a minimum offer pricing rule, which in many cases took them out of the market because they had to bid in too high. So they didn't clear and they didn't get capacity payments. And so this has been causing a conundrum in places like PJM, multi-state markets for, well, they they didn't have an auction for three years. It just happened last week. So that's one level, just what's happening at the market level. The next piece of it is you've got these 
independent system operators or regional transmission operators that are mandated or regulated by the feds that have these wholesale bulk markets. So that's being mandated there. But now what happens? Now you go from the bulk power system down to the nodal level where you've got your distribution companies that are moving power across lines in these competitive markets. You know, still half the country, the Southeast, Western part, those are vertically integrated so you don't have competitive markets. But in the other places where many of our listeners are playing, you have these distribution companies and who are they regulated by? State public utilities commissions. So now you have a situation, let's say you have FERC 841, order 841, or 2222. What are they? The first one says, the Federal Regulatory Commission says to the grid operators, thou shalt create an operating model that allows batteries to play in wholesale markets and be treated exactly like traditional bulk power generating resources. With 2222, it goes even a step further and says distributed assets that is on the customer side of the meter, now can participate in wholesale markets. Okay, so now what happens? So now the California, ISO New England says, oh, I need 50 megawatts and I need it in this specific geographic location. Let's just assume it's batteries because we have Sunrun, for example, aggregating 20 megawatts of batteries in ISO New England. Sonova just got a contract in the last auction in February for 85 megawatts of distributed assets behind the meter, which means tens of thousands of homes potentially with batteries. Okay, so ISO New England calls on Sonova to deliver those 85 megs. Okay, did the distribution company know that now they have this bi-directional flow across their system that's regulated by the state regulators that's now changing the way they have to think about how they're operating their system? And so, you have these two levels of policy slamming into each other that's overlaid by the potential for a loss of situational awareness. Because now you, with 2222 in particular, that federal rule, now you allow for the potential of hundreds of gigawatts, ultimately, of coming the other direction, of participating in the grid. In fact, in October, when 2222 was blessed, Chairman Chatterjee cited a study with 380 gigawatts of potential flexible distributed resources. So this thing could be huge. And the state policymakers have no say on how this participates in wholesale markets. So now you create the possibility for a lot of uncertainty in terms of how these things are coordinated, what's happening on the distribution grid, and who's responsible for getting those electrons physically delivered across this. Those issues are still going to have to be ironed out in a big way. Yeah. And I think the level of complexity is just going to increase. I recall, Peter, a fascinating section in your book where you talked about your, your visit for a day to ISO New England, where you were dealing with the folks that operate the grid there. And they were trying to put some dimension on this issue. And they said there were 350 generating assets right now that were behind the meter for customers, but they had 953 new resources in the interconnection queue. And it's going to be tough for the grid operators to have visibility into those resources. If this is going to get more complicated as we go along, do you have a point of view on, on what it's going to take for the federal level and state level folks to operate in harmony? Or is that a black box that really kind of no one has an idea of what what it's going to take. Yeah, that's a really great question. And if you not only did we just increase the number of assets significantly because we're seeing a lot of smaller registered assets with the ISO. John, in ISO New England, they now have 
a significant percentage of load not showing up in the summertime because it's solar produced on rooftops. And they don't know how much that is because it's not registered because it's 20 kilowatts here, five kilowatts there. But it's now in the many thousands of megawatts and growing very, very quickly. And every year, if you look at the annual forecasts from New York ISO or ISO New England, they're underestimating the rate of growth. So now they're having to not only deal with the multiplicity of new assets that are registered, but they have all this invisible change in behavior behind the meter that they can't quantify. And then you have this bi-directional flow because of all these batteries starting to come in everywhere because all the solar people are saying, all the installers, like Sunrun CEO Lynn Yurick says, oh, in a couple of years, every time we put a new solar in, we're going to add a battery to that mix as well. So now you're going to have all these homes with batteries and then start to bring in electric vehicles with their chargers and when they charge and vehicle to grid where it's going to go the other way. And so what you really need to do is very quickly iron out a whole host of things, everything from cybersecurity to who's on that platform of assets being registered, that situational awareness, a hierarchy of what assets can do what when, so that if you, for example, a battery is committed to reliability of the grid, it better not have just depleted itself because it was playing in the market when you're calling upon it for system reliability. That's an uh-uh. And so what has to evolve very, very quickly is a new grid architecture with these communications pathways, all low latency, high speed stuff, and a clear sense of who's able to see what that is all password protected. So quickly, if we don't wanna have the Tower of Babel here, we are going to have to develop a new way of thinking about this, a new grid architecture, and a series of rules that will enable the growth the same way the internet does Right. where more people can attach. We're going to have to come up with an internet of energy like that. It could be the largest data play that we have known today. Yeah, it's data and software. Yep. Uh, the internet of energy. Love that that notion. The irony is that one of the benefits of a highly distributed grid is that it's more secure, whereas if the solution is something that ties them all together, it facilitates that visibility. But it potentially runs the risk, increases the risk of connectivity and, and, and cyber threat. Well, all I can tell you, Peter, is that I'm glad I'm not the one that has to figure this out. <laughs> great, great conversation. Thank you for sharing your, your thoughts on that. At the start of this section, you referenced pricing models. And there's a fascinating pricing model that you referenced that's being explored very quietly in the New York ISO that factors carbon into the pricing of generation sources. And, and you think it potentially has application to other ISOs. Tell us a little about that pricing model and what you think the probability is that it will be adopted in other markets. Sure. So you start with, you know, Europe had a cap and trade for a while on the price of carbon. Then you move to the Northeast Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative where they it's like $6 a ton, that sort of thing. And, and what they do is every the cap declines, generators have to pay if they're carbon intensive, and then that money's used to push for efficiency and more renewables and that sort of thing. Ontario, I'm sorry, Quebec, Ontario used to be in it, but left. Quebec and California also have a cap and trade. So now what New York said is cap and trade is okay, but what would be really good is if you have a functioning market where Right now, you know, we externalize all these pollutants. They're called externalities because they're not priced into the marketplace. So New York said, what if you 
price carbon in. So let's say you're a carbon intensive asset, all things being equal, you would have been at a 30 bucks a megawatt hour, but because of your carbon intensity, it's 33 for a gas plant, let's just say, and 36 for a coal plant because it's twice as carbon intensive as the gas plant. So let's say at 36 bucks, maybe the coal plant doesn't get selected because it was too high. The market clearing price was 34, let's say. The gas plant would get the $34, but the $3 adder would be stripped out of their revenue stream and put into a pot for every megawatt hour. And then that money would be used to subsidize cleaner resources, similar to how Reggie, Reggie does things. So they've been thinking about this for a while. And I had a chance to talk to Richard Dewey, the CEO of New York ISO about it. He, and, and the states behind it, what has to happen now is to assign a societal cost of carbon. And they're thinking of something as high as say $40 a ton, which is basically saying, what's the damage to society that can be avoided if we remove a ton of carbon from the atmosphere? Right. And so that can be very subjective, but clearly there's a non-zero level of damage. This would result in A, cleaner resources being dispatched more frequently, and then B, when dirty resources are dispatched, that money funneled for investments in cleaner things. One challenge is, though, if you price electricity higher, dirtier substitutes now have an opportunity to compete where they didn't before. Right. So you have to be thoughtful about you don't create perverse economic outcomes. Now, New York ISO went to FERC and said, you know, we want to do this. It's a wholesale market thing. So we need your blessing. And for a while, there was a pretty significant pushback. But last year, again, Chairman Chatterjee said, yeah, we will think about this. And then in the public register recently, the FERC came out and said, yep, we now officially bless the concept and we would like their various ISOs to come back to us and think about an operating model. And they also had a hearing with a whole bunch of players in markets discussing the concept of internalizing carbon into the market and adding these adders, which would create a more efficient outcome than what we currently have today, where there's all these different levels of subsidies, which distort markets six ways from Sunday. This help, This may help to make that a lot more efficient and provide clearer signals to all the actors. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me like such a clean, clear approach that could help transform the market. So thank you for including that. And I hope other ISOs take a look at it and consider adopting it. Can we really get to 100% carbon-free grid? What's it going to take? Well, first of all, the tools we have in the toolbox keep getting better to get to the first, say, 60% or 70%. Every time I open that toolbox, the tools are shinier, lower cost, whether it's solar panels getting a half percent better every year, batteries getting cheaper, more powerful, et cetera. But then you still have this last mile challenge of how do you get from 75 or 80% to the 100% because of that long duration storage issue. I mean, we're gonna overbuild some renewables. We'll build more than we need and curtail just because it'll be cheaper, right? But but you'll still have these interseasonal issues and then, Probably hydrogen picks up the slack, could be modular nuclear, small modular reactors in the future. There could be other things, but at some level, we don't have to know all the answers yet. It's like when you're hiking down a trail, you turn the corner, you see a new vista, you respond to that. Sometimes you hear these criticisms, well, we can't get to 100% carbon-free grid because we don't have the technology. I would answer that's not even a relevant question yet conceptually we can. The real relevant question is how quickly can we start to decarbonize today? Because there's this net present value of carbon, the 
the sooner we can get rid of stuff today, the less damage it does for us in the future because it stays in the atmosphere for a long time. So in fact, the International Energy Agency a couple of weeks ago said, if we want to get to that 1.5 degree and no higher, we're going to have to stop all investments in fossil now and quadruple the amount of renewables we're putting into the system as of now as well. And that will solve for the X of the 60 or 70%. And then ultimately, technology will evolve, things will become clearer, and then we'll go, oh, okay, this tool is half as costly now as it was three years ago because of economies of scale, et cetera. Adoption, finance getting more comfortable, all the things that have enabled wind, solar, batteries in the grid right now. So as we navigate our way down the path, new vistas become clearer. Yeah, that IEA net zero by 2050 report was really fascinating. It's one of the best pieces of work I've ever seen IEA put out. In fact, Peter, I'm glad you mentioned it because we'll we'll include that as a resource in the show notes for this episode. So if anyone would like to check it out, they'll be able to. So in, in all of this mix, what in your view is the sleeper? What what's what's the thing out there that no one really sees yet, that no one's taking it seriously enough that's going to help us get to that 100% carbon-free grid? So potentially two that I see. One, the small modular reactor. Costs were, these are like 200 megawatt machines that they daisy-chain together, although Argentina has a 25 megawatt one. Russia has a couple already functioning. China's working on this. They're kind of like uh, modular homes versus stick-built homes. You know, you quality control, you build all the pieces in the factory, you ship them by rail or truck, and you assemble them on site. Right now, there was a report that came out, I think, last week from, from Pacific Northwest National Labs that said, maybe we can get these in the high 40s, low to mid $50 per megawatt hour range, which is still considerably more expensive than gas-fired plants or wind or solar with four hours of batteries. But you have the dispatchability, you have the 24-7 ability. So modular nukes have some possible value in this conversation, although the first one of these new scales, for example, won't be built in Utah until at least 2029 based on current planning. And that's the first one that's been permitted by the National or the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The other sleeper, which I think is going to be really fascinating and unfold more quickly than people see, is that as electric vehicle sales increase, and we're by no means the fastest country, in May of this year, for example, Norway just announced 60.4% of their new vehicle registrations last month were pure electrics, and another 20% were hybrids. So four out of every five cars sold had a plug in it. Wow. And, and those numbers are increasing very rapidly. By the way, the Ford Mustang was the winner in Norway, which is awesome. <laughs> okay? So, That's great. So now, if you took the whole... U.S. fleet. Average vehicles last, what, 11 years, and we sell 17 million years. So take a little while. We only sell 2% electrics into the system right now, but that number is growing quickly. Let's assume, though, we electrify 50% of the fleet over the next decade and a half. That would mean that about 15% of all the electricity, we would increase the consumption of electricity by 15%. That'd be rolling around on wheels, right? And vehicles are typically utilized 4% of the time. The rest of the time, they're parked in people's driveways on the street or at a workplace, which means you'd have all these batteries doing nothing. And the batteries are getting more powerful. The cycle life's getting longer. So we're going to have this critical, huge, untapped asset, which is why somebody like Volkswagen with their MEB platform, their ID3, ID4 is now saying, oh, 
We are going to make all of our vehicles as of next year bidirectional capable, vehicle to grid capable where the power can flow in both directions. So smart charging to tummy tuck that duck when there's a surplus of renewables and releasing energy into the grid. First for frequency regulation, fast response, 10 minutes spinning reserve, high value, high capacity, low energy, but over time, more and more energy. And then you saw Ford's F-150 Lightning 110 kilowatt hour, 150 kilowatt hour battery, depending upon 230 or 300 miles of range, those vehicles will be capable of plugging into homes and providing backup power in the event of power outages. You know, as VW says, we expect to see within the visible future, gigawatt hours and maybe even terawatt hours of energy driving around on wheels, being stored and certainly being under utilized relative to what it could be. So now there's a lot of thinking these are going to be batteries on wheels all over the place. How do we tap these and bring that capability into the grid? That is one of the new frontiers where sort of transmission and transportation collide and create these new opportunities. And I think we're going to see, I mean, the first proof points. This past week, Power announced that in White Plains, I think it was, they had six bi-directional school buses. Maryland, Montgomery County has over 320 school buses they're leasing that are bi-directional capable. And BYD just this past week, the Chinese EV manufacturer announced that they're bringing school buses to the United States and they will be bi-directional capable. It'll start with buses because they have very fixed schedules. So you know when you need them on the road and you know when they're sitting on the yard and then you can figure out when they can be absorbing energy and releasing. You want stuff with fixed schedules to start with. And then as your algorithms get better in your AI, we'll get better at figuring out when to use what and when to be releasing and absorbing. So I think that's going to be kind of a critical and right now underappreciated asset. Fascinating. Just two things to add on here. That F-150 introduction was mind blower. And I think the the capability of that truck to power a house for three days during an outage was something that had people saying who don't even need a truck saying, hey, I'll buy one of those. And this bus piece is really interesting that you bring up, Peter, because you know we recently did some research in our community in partnership with NRG to kind of define the state of vehicle fleet electrification. And State and local governments, city, city, state, local governments, and educational institutions are all in on pursuing electrifying their fleets. And it's going to be buses for all the reasons that you mentioned. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Peter, we, we, I mean, boy, there are so many other things we could talk about here. I love the book. I think it's must reading. It's going to be required reading for everyone on the SED team. I'm really looking forward to having uh, hundreds of thousands of copies of that being in distribution. So we've talked about the book. I'd now like to move on to what's my favorite part of these conversations, Peter, and that's where I get to know my guest a little better. So let's dive into getting to know Peter. First, let me ask you, Peter, why, why are you passionate about this space? And by the way, your passion comes through loud and clear. <laughs> yeah, I've been accused of that on more than one occasion. You know, when I was little, I remember driving into Boston, seeing all the cars and thinking to myself, gosh, I wonder if there's a way to hook these up to a chairlift or something, because this doesn't make any sense. Like, even when I was little, it became clear to me, we just can't keep doing this, even though I didn't know anything about atmospheric chemistry. But by 1988, 
I was in the first argument with my father-in-law about climate change because I'd read a book called Ice Time. And I said to him, this will be the defining issue of our generation. He thought I was an idiot. And there's some justifiable reasons for that. But, but the climate change wasn't one of them. It's fascinating to me that here we are after, you know, it's been, what, 20,000 years since we painted the bison on the cave of the, or the wall of the cave in Lascaux, France. So clearly, we've been sentient thinking beings for a long time, generations of us. We're the first group of generations that fully understands the concept of finitude, of, of finite, that we can't keep doing what we're doing anymore the way we're doing it. And so for me, it's this really fascinating experiment we're living in the middle of, which is can humanity figure out how to rein in its own behavior or change its technological approaches for our own survival? And this, the biggest transformation in the history of humanity, IRENA, the Renewable Energy Agency, says $130 trillion, right? So as a human being in the middle of this, I'm intensely curious as to how this experiment plays out. Sometimes I wish I were a Martian so I had less in the, involved in the, <laughs> the, in the game, right? But, right? but just from a sheer intellectual exercise, whether humanity is wise enough to deal with its intelligence, wisdom being knowing what to do, what not to do, intelligence just being the ability to manipulate, right? That to me is fascinating. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned thinking about cars as a kid. A common thread that I've seen with several of our guests is that they've been thinking about this ever since they were young, be it Rob Threlkeld, be it Jigger Shah. You're in real good company and having been thinking about this since you were a tight. And your passion is, Peter, it's inspiring. I, can I tell you one story about that? So, sure, you know, sure. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like four in the sandbox, John. And, we're playing with the Tonka toys and I look over at Billy and Sam and realize, oh, we're going to have to get jobs someday. So I'm like, Billy, what are you going to do for a living? He goes, fireman. So how about you, Sam? And he goes, I think I'm going to be a policeman. There was a little bit of a pause. And then Sam says to me, what about you? And I says, oh, demand response. <laughs> but um, bum. I love that. that <laughs> like that's fate, fate picks you at an early age. John. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So two kids in the sandbox had some influence on you. But who's had the greatest influence on your career, Peter? You know, in some ways, I would have to say my wife, because I used to come at this from a much more sort of judgmental doom and gloom, like we're not going to make it sort of thing. And she she just kept on saying to me, look, if you want to have influence in the world and if you want to be just a happier person, you have to start thinking of this in a different way. It has to be from a sense of, of bounty, if you will, of, of possibility. And, and Mary Powell, the CEO of Green Mountain Power, when she talks about all this, she talks about love. And ultimately, that's a critical piece of this. We're doing this because we love future generations we're never going to meet, because we love our own children. So that sort of influence has been very helpful. And then my colleagues, the ones I worked with at Constellation, the ones who said to me, yeah, you think you can do it all, but if you don't work as a team, we're not going to get anywhere, who sort of slapped me upside the head and made me wiser about that. And then just the people on my team that made me realize how fun this could be and how funny it sometimes could be. And so it's been a whole lot of different people, not one individual, more a community of people that I've had you know, the incredible joy of working with over the decades. Thank you for sharing that. And I've had the pleasure to meet Julie, so it's, it's, it's very nice that you referenced her, and, and I could see 100% why, why that would be the case. What's been your greatest career challenge? Oh, greatest career challenge, managing up. 
And it's not usually because, it's because I look at the way people are treated in corporations and I know how much untapped potential there is. And one thing that just gets my blood boiling is when I see one size fits all policies or policies focused on the least common denominator because they don't trust people to do the right thing. And that to me is just a smackdown of human potential. And boy, in a work environment where I'm managing up and that's there, I either get out or I self-destruct because I can't shut up about what should be happening versus what is. (laughs) Playing the political corporate game would not be on your list of strong suits, would it? You know, it's a waste of my time, frankly, and and my emotional and psychic energies. Well, thank goodness you feel that way. What accomplishment are you most proud of? The the kids, right? Just uh, one of my one of my sons is in human resources, and he's focusing on all these issues around equity and fairness, and how do we make the workplace better? And he's in a very large bank. And then the other one, he he lives in Argentina, and he flew up and he he read the book last week on on the plane. And so the other morning, this was one of the most thrilling things that's happened to me forever, which is in the kitchen. My wife and he are sitting around the table while I'm, I think I was washing the dishes or something. And they're talking about the duck curve and my my stupid idea of the t-shirts with the tummy tuck the duck. And I was like, oh my God, my family now knows what I do. And my son said to me, he says, yeah, but now you no longer have a secret language. We know all your stories and you're not inscrutable <laughs> anymore. <laughs> and I was like, that's awesome. That's great. Well, it's so nice you were able to share that with your family and I think reflecting on your family and your ch- your children as people that you're really proud of is, is just a wonderful thing. I mean, I think success is all about that balance of success in life slash family and success in your career pursuit. And there are so many people that kind of have one and not the other. And it's great that you clearly have both, Peter. People who, who say, oh, at work, I'm a different person. Uh, I have no patience for that. Like, why would you, why would you create that schizophrenia within, your, within yourself if you have to? The same person should be everywhere operating at the same time. It's not healthy. Yeah. I think there's a certain sense of confidence, right? If you have the confidence that you don't have to deal with it and you can succeed independently, I think you're more likely to say, I don't have time for this and I'm moving on. I think when you don't have that level of confidence, you're much more inclined to kind of bite hard and move on. True. And it comes with age too, quite frankly. I mean, the gray hairs or the no hairs, they give us a certain level of confidence because we've stepped in everything and had to clean our shoes off a bunch of times. And after a while you realize, ah, I can survive that. Speaking of gray hairs and no hairs, this is, uh, you've got a lot of game left and this book is really going to make just a tremendous contribution, I think, to the transition. What impact do you hope for the book, the energy switch to have? Okay, so actually, it's on three levels. One, the professionals that I wrote it for, including who I was 10 years ago, when I was frustrated, that they all feel recognized, and that they understand this is a book for us, right? And and they, they now are able to see some connections that in their day jobs, they weren't able to see because they're too busy. right? Mm-hmm. So that would be one, those professionals contextualizing two all the students coming out of school who are trying to figure this thing out and where they fit going, oh, now I get how the pieces fit together. I want to be here. 
And I want, you know, I want to be at a conference five years from now and taps me on the shoulder and says, I read your book five years ago. And I figured out then I wanted to get into the cyber energy space. And now I'm doing X. Like for me, I'll probably faint from joy from that. And then sort of the third group are the average Joes who are smart, curious people who drive by that solar panel on somebody's roof and now go, oh, I'm looking at a miniature power plant. Or they see that Tesla drive by and realize what that's emblematic of, this thing that we are all in, this huge movement that is not apparent to most people, but that we are all part of, again, trying to create this, the greatest transformation humanity has ever tried to accomplish for ourselves and for the other creatures that live on this planet. What a wonderful way to wrap up the conversation, Peter. And my wish for you, which I think will also be a prediction, is that you're going to get that tap on the shoulder many, many times during the rest of your career. Well, thank you. You know I love to communicate, and it's one of the reasons I love working with you at SAD. SED. It's the energy conversation that just gets us both so jazzed. Yeah. Well, this was super, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Smart Energy Voices. For our listeners, if you're interested in uh, getting a copy of the Energy Switch, I'll, I'll be buying 10 copies that we're going to send to the first 10 people that write in asking for a copy. Just send me an email, john at smartenergydecisions.com. It's not only going to be a copy paid for by Smart Energy Decisions, but it's going to be a copy personally autographed by the author and my guest today, Peter Kelly Dittwaller. So I look forward to sending those books out to the first 10 folks who request that. So email me at john at smartenergydecisions.com. You can also see the show notes for details on how you could get your own copy. If you're not one of the fortunate 10, Peter's family owns a small independent bookstore in New England. And in the show notes, we're going to include a link to that bookstore so you can buy a copy for yourself and for friends and colleagues. And we hope that you'll consider not only buying the book, but supporting that bookstore when you purchase the book. To our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of our next Smart Energy Decisions event, visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're really excited, and it's such a great personal privilege for me to be able to share these conversations with leaders of the energy transition in our podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Peter, thank you once again. And to our audience, thanks for listening in. Have a great day and let's make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.